Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Raggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Lone War Journal. This is Generation Jihad, the podcast that covers all things in what used to be known as the global war on terror, but we now call the long war. After the other day, we talked a little bit about Al-Qaeda. We're going to return to Israel's war with Hamas and various terrorist organizations in Gaza, as well as the beyond. And today we'll take a closer look at Hezbollah. Uh, of course, Joe Trusman, who's a research analyst at FDD's Long War Journal, will be joining. Our guest today is David Daoud. He's a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies, where he focuses on Lebanon and Hezbollah. David was with FDD uh, as a research analyst a while back, and he was a contributor at Longmore Journal, and then he uh, took a hiatus and you know did some other things, and now he's back at FDD. Welcome back, David. It's great to see you. It's great to talk to you. It's been a while. Uh, it's great to be back. Like I said, it's, it's like coming back home. Yeah, exactly. Glad we get you on Generation Jihad. Hezbollah is certainly a major part of this. I know it's one that Israel is... Um, very worried about. I mean, as it's taking the fight to Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad and other terror groups in Gaza, it certainly is looking over its shoulder and devoted significant resources to counter potential escalation by Hezbollah. Before we get to that, we're going to do what we normally do. Joe, give us a brief update on what's happening. The ceasefire between Israel and Hamas has ended. The fighting has resumed. It was a seven-day ceasefire with an exchange of hostages being held by Hamas for Palestinian prisoners. All of them have been convicted on terrorism charges, some pretty significant. Yeah, hi, Bill. So, like you're saying, like a seven-day ceasefire where Hamas and other Palestinian armed groups, they exchanged hostages, most of them Israelis, some others were different nationality, for Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails. So, over the week, hostage for terrorists, basically, essentially that's what it is. Change happened, but yesterday a list wasn't received, right? Israelis and Hamas and allies, I guess you could say, were trying to extend the ceasefire. They couldn't. Hamas didn't give Israel the list of people. I think it's supposed to be 10. They couldn't make 10. So anyway, the ceasefire collapsed and started seeing fighting. Yesterday, especially yesterday, there were some signs that things weren't going to go well. Houthis in Yemen, Iran-backed militias in Iraq, also known as the Islamic resistance in Iraq. They published statements saying if the Israelis were to start fighting again in Gaza, that they would resume fighting as well. So it happened. So now, since early this morning, local time in Israel and Gaza started seeing fighting. And then now we're seeing the northern border become active again. It's been quiet since the ceasefire, at least mostly quiet. We'll talk a lot more about that in the show. But things are picking up again, and I anticipate the Houthis to join in again or restart their campaign, at least against southern Israel. And of course, the Iran-backed groups in, in Iraq probably launching rockets, mortars, and everything else that they've been doing against American targets in the region. Yeah, I find the Houthi statement to be odd. I mean, as we documented and discussed here on Generation Jihad, the Houthis have been conducting activities even while this ceasefire is going on, of hijacking, fired at U.S. ships, the U.S. shot down a Houthi drone, you know, the ballistic missiles fired at a U.S. warship. So, yeah, that's that's kind of odd. Maybe they're referring to direct attacks on Israel. Do you think that's what they were getting at? You know? Yeah, I mean, you know, as we've talked about, they've threatened, you know, maritime vessels, commercial vessels, especially ones that are connected to Israel somehow. 
so yeah, I think it'd be direct attacks against Israel, especially in in Alat and in southern Israel. But the way I really see it and everything right now, it's like post October seventh attack. It's like the Houthis' time to shine because I mean, essentially, they were in a ceasefire with Saudi Arabia, right? So. Now they have another purpose, essentially, that's the way I see it. They're very active. And yes, they were active through the ceasefire as well. So we'll see what happens with them. Yeah, I think it almost seems like the Houthis, look, I, I think the Iranians have significant influence on all of these militias and how they react. It almost seemed like they had the green light to be the spoiler here. They were never officially part of any ceasefire. So none of these militias were under any obligation whatsoever to adhere to any ceasefire. So I think, you know, the Iraqi militias dialing it back against U.S. forces while the Houthis continue, it really sends an interesting message to the U.S., to Israel, that, look, this stuff is going to continue, ceasefire, no ceasefire, just another pressure point for the Iranians to put on the, on the West. But David, you've been following Hezbollah's activities closely. The attacks that Hezbollah has been launching Joe basically said, you know, they've, they've resumed, but it hasn't gone to the level that we saw, you know, prior to the ceasefire. What types of attacks are you seeing coming from Lebanon, from Hezbollah and other groups operating there? Uh, moving forward, I think we're going to see a slow resumption of what we'd seen prior to that. I mean, there, I think first we need to take a step back and kind of frame how this conflict is unfolded. Um, it's not a Hamas-Israel war. I think that's the first mistake that's being made, kind of framing it as a Hamas-Israel war. Uh, if, if we go back to the training videos for the October 7th attack, the attack videos themselves, we saw these fighters were wearing uh, the Joint Operations Room of Resistance Axis or Palestinian factions, right, uh, patches on their arms. We saw uh, Hamas, uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad headbands, right? This was a coordinated attack by uh, this collection of um Iranian-linked militias in the Gaza Strip, and they all have kind of varying degrees of loyalty to Iran, probably with Pij being the most uh, loyal, you know, Hamas being somewhere in the middle, uh, you, have, you know, obviously popular resistance committees, uh, PFLP. Um, so that's kind of what, it wasn't just Hamas that attacked Israel from, from it was the, it was basically the southwestern front uh, of, of the resistance axis that attacked Israel. And that kind of helps us frame what's going on from Lebanon, because again, it's not just Hezbollah that's attacking from there, right? We have the Lebanon-based franchises of Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad taking, at least up to a certain point, they were the ones taking point on the more uh, direct attacks on Israeli civilian positions, right? The the rockets being fired that could have killed Israeli civilians, those were almost immediately claimed by Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. The infiltration that we saw early on, I think it was by three Pidge fighters, um, also almost immediately claimed by Pidge. Hezbollah has kind of taken the more precise action, right? the uh, the uh, anti-tank missile, anti-tank guided missile attacks, the kind of the precision strikes on um, uh, Israeli military sites along the border, uh, the attacks in the Shabbat farms, which per the rules of the game that have operated between Israel and Lebanon, or sorry, Israel and Hezbollah, is kind of this area that's considered between both sides is open to conflict, right? So Hezbollah has been continuing this kind of having its cake and eating it too approach um, at least at the outset of, of the conflict, right, where um, we saw this over the past four years, where Hezbollah, as Lebanon collapsed uh, under the weight of its economic crisis, Hezbollah kind of took a, a backseat in direct, direct attacks against Israel. And the attacks that we saw, the rockets fired over Passover, uh, the ID and Megiddo, these were the Palestinian factions in Lebanon, kind of creating this 
gap of plausible deniabilities such as it exists. I think we're getting, we could see more of that. Um, now, here's the factor that's allowing Hezbollah to attack at all. This is something that Nasrallah said on November 3rd. Israel is now invested in Gaza. Right? If Israel were freed up, um, I mean, this is, you know, and he's, he's right on this, right? Had Israel been freed up to deal with Hezbollah, a single one of these attacks would have opened up the Northern Front immediately. As Israel gets more invested in Gaza, Hezbollah feels more emboldened to act to kind of go deeper. We saw this with the uh, killing of um, Hamadrad's son, uh, Redwan fighters, right the day before the ceasefire, if I'm not mistaken, right? They, they kind of went as far as they could. And this was, again, commensurate with the Israeli investment in Gaza. There's also another factor that's operating that I think is emboldening uh, Hezbollah. It's American pressure on Israel not to escalate on the northern front. We've seen this from you know Lloyd Austin several times. It was an Axios report. Uh, that came out a couple of weeks ago, uh, saying the Biden administration was concerned that Israel's military actions on the northern border could lead to a, an escalation and not Hezbollah's. You know, there's uh, also another report, I think, in Yediot Achonot, where um, Galant, Defense Minister Galant, had been pressuring Prime Minister Netanyahu to initiate against Hezbollah. Um, and under American pressure, Prime Minister Netanyahu said, no, we're not we're not doing this. So kind of this is the, the framing that is that is going to allow Hezbollah to resume the activities both directly and through the their their palestinian partners in lebanon similar to what we were seeing before um and again as israel invests more in gaza now we have to have to deal with the southern front uh, that hasn't even been touched yet uh, god knows what this this ceasefire has allowed hamas to reorganize uh kind of absorb the initial blow steady itself um it's going to be a much difficult much more difficult fight in my opinion uh moving into southern gaza and that'll allow Hezbollah to do more as Israel invests more. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. I, you know, one of the reasons, main reason I opposed the ceasefire was, you know, look, I understand the case of getting the hostages back, but you're putting, you know, you're giving the, you know, the the the, the calculus of this fight had to have changed for Israel after after October seventh, and. I'm not really sure. I mean, they they fully grasp this that like going back to hostage, uneven hostage exchanges, changing exchanging terrorists for civilians, things of that nature, just a major mistake. But um, and to your point, David, you know, Mia culpa here. Yeah, we. I, I and I didn't. I didn't put my dis my sort of disclaimer when I refer to Hamas. I I'm, I usually say Hamas and company, or mm. you'd say I say you know use it for shorthand just because it's. You know, in conversation, it's difficult to go Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad and popular resistance committees. And so, yeah, you're you're correct about that. I've struggled to find some kind of, you know, one word catch all uh, for all of it, too. I, I should just say Hamas and company and you know, Hamas yeah, being yeah. the major player, obviously, <laughs> in Gaza. And to your point about it being one front in a war, this is a mistake that was made with, you know, on the the war against Al Qaeda and then what became the Islamic State. Everyone just said the war in Afghanistan or the war in Iraq and failing to link all of the theaters. These are theaters within within an, an overall war. So that's an excellent point that you bring up that one that, you know, we hear at Generation Jihad, you know, and, and at the Long Word Journal that we've made numerous times that looking at just the war between, you know, Hamas and company in Israel and Gaza is that's just tunnel vision because you're not seeing the bigger picture with the entire axis of resistance and with Iran's, you know, guiding hand and, and it's it's overarching strategy. If you take those out of the out of if you not, don't put that in context, um, you, you made the perfect case of of how Hezbollah is operating. So really, um, 
Thank you. Thanks for thanks for that clarification. And, and to to a point you made earlier about kind of how the ceasefire has how how the not uninvolved militias have operated in a ceasefire. This further demonstrates Iranian coordination, right? You, the Iraqi militias were not partners to the conflict, nor were they partners to the ceasefire. Yet they stopped, right? Same thing with Hezbollah, and I think the Houthis are also playing a role that is you know going to divide Israel's attention more, divide uh, Iron Dome batteries, divide anti or sorry anti missile batteries. It, and it's harder for the Israelis to reach them than it would be, say, Hezbollah. And they're all the way in Yemen. So I think they're all, they all seem to be playing a very orchestrated role, each within, and this is how the resistance axis operates, each militia operates within the context of its own capabilities, its own limitations, its own domestic constraints. But they are all contributing. Um, and they all seem to, again, all stop in unison or, or act in unison. So... This kind of demonstrates the subtle Iranian coordination, despite you know the the, the denials uh, by Foreign Minister Amir Abdullahian. That's been kind of accepted uh, a lot of the policy community in D.C. Interestingly, that well, yeah, no, this is a rogue action, or these actors are not necessarily operating according to a top-down hierarchy. You know, to a point you made about the Houthis, right? The distance is a factor, and I think that plays to to the, the strengths of the Iranian strategy, right? The Israelis could strike the Houthis in Yemen. They could hit some of these missile sites, but they would have to devote a significant part of its resources to do so. Air force or, um, you know, depending on how they hit it, probably would be airstrikes. They would need refueling and, you know, doing, a, you know, search and rescue setting. That There's a lot of difficulties involving strikes like that. The Israelis don't like to leave anyone behind. And that distance gives the Houthis the ability to, to be the spoiler in all this. The Iranians get the, you know, that's I, my assessment of is, is that this is all happening in the background and we're, we could still hit you even while you were, you're in a ceasefire. Sure, I'm militias in Iraq. Sure, the Hezbollah and the other groups in Lebanon and, and along the Syrian border are quiet, but we're still going to dial the pressure up on you here. And I think it's a very clever strategy by the Iranians. Um, they, they've, you know, it's, 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 it's really interesting to watch them assemble these assets over the years. And one of the things I was screaming about these Iraqi militias for, God, for well over 15 years, explaining how they would be force multipliers for the Iranians, um, in, in the fight to come, how they were developing them and, you know, how they, how they basically are basically, you know, my view, Hezbollah on steroids, right? Hezbollah helped. Form these groups. We all know Musali Doctor's role in that, and Hezbollah's roles, and in what the U.S. military called the special groups. And anyway, I won't go too deep into that. But I, I just watching the Iranians execute this strategy and watching the people in the West trying to disconnect the dots. Well, the Houthis are rogue, or the Houthis really aren't under the direction or taking direction. Well, Hamas's operation was a rogue operation, right? Like that's the narrative we keep hearing. Well, they didn't know, and they were surprised, and. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. Right. I mean, it just gives them cover to do what they do, mm. right? Mm. Well, it's also like, I mean, it's 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 a it's a continuation of the failure. I mean, Sakhia Negbi was the current head of the uh the um, Israeli National Security Council. I think on one of the first Saturdays after the war, maybe a weekend, if I recall, came out and said, like, hey, we failed to read Hamas. Right. We thought because they sat out the the kind of the uh the the rounds of fighting in 2022 and 2023 that they'd absorbed the lessons of 2021. They just wanted to, you know, live and let live. Um, and really what Hamas was doing was operating kind of according to this broader pattern by the resistance axis, which is like, hey, if you can step to the forefront, do it. If not, sit back. 
you know, let Pidge take, if Pidge can take more of a beating, Pidge will, Pidge will step to the forefront. We'll hold Hamas in, 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 uh, in reserve. And, you know, continuing to see like this disconnect, this idea of rogue action, this idea that they're not supporting each other is a continuation of that, that failure of imagination that led the Israelis not to be as alert as they should have been on October 7th. Um, I mean, I don't know how much I can go off on a riff here, but personally, I think some of it's deliberate um, in that if you want to preserve the option to continue negotiations with the Iranians the day after this war ends, and it will end at some point, uh, then you have to demonstrate or at least pretend that there's a disconnect between uh, Iran and the most barbaric action we've seen in the Middle East in, I don't know, it, certainly my lifetime. Uh I can't think of something maybe Halabja uh, rivals it in terms of just its visceral barbarity. Um, but how, how could you negotiate with an entity that uh, over the country that has spinoffs that act worse than ISIS? So I think part of that is deliberate, um, you know, attempt to keep room to, to negotiate with the Iranians the day after. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. If, if, if we admitted what the Iranians were doing, policymakers, then they couldn't get into nuclear negotiations and um you know releasing money to the iranians things of that nature and it's 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 absolute madness you know you had mentioned you know i think the hamas lulled the israelis into a false sense of security there was an article in the new york times uh look i don't know the the veracity it was released yesterday published yesterday on that the israeli um military and intelligence had plans from hamas to did you get a chance to read this david or joe did you see this? I, I i saw this yeah i think i forget where i saw this but i did see something along those lines that they saw it and they're like this they can't they can't execute this was yeah that was the, the, the yeah. Israel, and they're yeah. saying yeah. look they're not fighting they're not yeah. doing anything yeah. yeah it's clever right well because they're mm -hmm. focused they, they turned their eyes to israel i said early on that the israelis i remember Joe, I think you could attest to this. One of the first things we talked, I said, the Israelis lacked imagination and there was an intelligence failure and an analytical failure here. And this article discusses this. And But it was, you know, if you're going to execute attack like this, what better way to do it than to lull your enemy into a false mm -hmm. sense of security? And that's what right. Hamas did. And look, I, I realize we're getting a little off the topic of Hezbollah, sure. but it all fits, right? Because yeah. the... One group, as you you perfectly laid out, David. One group dials it up, the other one dials it back. One other group, then then those two dial it back, and another group steps in, and it's 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 a way to you know everyone's kept guessing, and then some, and in some ways they misread the room. You know, it's it, I really always felt that you know the, it was a failure of of imagining. The Israelis never believed that an attack like this can occur, and that is once you once you see the imagine the the, the I don't know how to put this, but once they they underestimated their enemy and didn't mm -hmm. think that the the enemy had the capabilities or had the imagination to carry out this attack, um, that's when that's when this was lost. That's when you know it was destined for something like this to happen, and uh, it's, this, it's frightening. You see this on a micro level. I mean, just a final point on this: like Gershon Baskin, who's an Israeli peace activist, he you know considered this. Ghazi Hamad, who's a member of the Politburo in Hamas. This is the guy who was on LBCI recently saying, we're going to do this again and again and again and again until Israel is destroyed. I mean, Gershon is sitting there writing these mea culpas uh, about how like, he considered Ghazi a friend and they were talking peace. And this is, this is the guy he negotiated the 2011 Shalit deal with. 
I mean, and you see kind of the the shock almost in in Baskin's writings uh, that a Hamas member is acting like a Hamas member. Um, and this is again, this kind of just demonstrates the 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 extent of the deception that even on a personal level, uh, you can somehow be lulled into a false sense of security that, hey, well, you know, this ISIS guy, he really wants to make peace, right? This Hamas guy, he really wants to make peace. Um, and, you know, built based on that, you see Gershon, I mean, he's a particular type, but he written several articles in uh, J-Post basically calling for the end of the Jewish state and all that based on this idea that, well, hey, look, we all, even Hamas wants peace. So just the extent of the deception. Yeah, it, it, I saw this with Afghanistan, with the peace talks, with the, Tal- the Taliban are in peace talks. They want peace. Yeah. And completely misreading the room. And it's Westerners are, you know, they just think that their our enemies think like they do, want to have the same desires and goals. And meanwhile, our enemies use this, they're clever and they use it to they use it against us. It's it's a and they may be weaker, but they're jujitsu in getting lulling us into a false sense of security. It's um I mean, look, a lot of it, we, we blame ourselves. There's people like us out there who recognize these tactics, and but sadly, our betters in uh, foreign policy circles and in leadership, they just seem to be very susceptible to this weak-minded thinking. It's it's frustrating. This thinking is not sophisticated enough. So uh, let's uh, right. That's the whole argument, right? Um, but yeah, oh, back back to back to Hezbollah. <laughs> Yeah, so in statements since the October 7th attack, it says that it's conducting its attacks merely to support the Hamas and company fighting against the Israelis in Gaza. Do you think that's the case, or is it more than just helping its uh, its brothers in its axis of resistance? I think it's absolutely the case. Look, uh, not every time they're speaking, they're lying, um, in the sense that like, this is going to take us back four years, right? 2019, October 17th, 2019, Lebanon economically collapses, right? We had the massive protests in the streets and, you know, everyone expected at the time, some people expected at the time that Hezbollah was going to be swept away in this massive uprising. Lebanon remains the same. Uh, The only difference is that it's it's an economic disaster. Almost 100% of the uh, the lira has lost almost, uh, the Lebanese currency has lost almost 100% of its value. There was a time where people were getting food poisoning because they couldn't have, they didn't have enough electricity to keep, to keep food refrigerated. Uh, you know, there is no prospect of economic recovery. The, uh, the people who had bankrolled Lebanon uh, to kind of keep it afloat, uh, the West, the Gulf have pulled their aid. Basically, Lebanon is on a downward trajectory. It's in another uh, political deadlock, and there's no end in sight, either financial or otherwise. Now, people are suffering, obviously, amidst this this economic crisis. You don't want to be to be seen to be the guy who compounds that misery with a war with Israel, especially one as destructive as the Israelis uh, are promising it to be, because of how Hezbollah is intertwined with Lebanon civilian infrastructure. So, what Hezbollah is trying to do is an approach of having its cake and eating it too. Now. Going to, I think ideally, you know, in an ideal world from the resistance axis's perspective, what happened in October 7th would have happened from several fronts, right? What happened on October 7th was Hezbollah's threat to invade the Galilee that Nasrallah made in February 2011, just from Gaza. That's exactly how it would have unfolded. And in an ideal world, that would have been followed up with massive missile attacks covered by an Iranian nuclear umbrella, right? There is no, really, Israel doesn't have a second strike option. 
uh, with that because of its size, because of the concentration of its population. So you, all Iran needs to do is rattle a nuclear saber, the nuclear saber, and you, you're able to set a new status quo uh, with, with these the Israelis. That's not the case. That's not where we are today. They had to launch this operation probably to tout it, torpedo Saudi-Israeli normalization. Hezbollah is not where it needs to be in terms of its comfort, right? In terms of uh, having the initiative, in terms of being in a place where like its its domestic con- concerns are, are settled, where it can launch this war. Um, but that doesn't mean they're going to sit out the fight entirely. What they are doing now, and Nasrallah did say this, and I take him at face value, is the contribution they're giving is to divide Israeli forces along two fronts. Now, this does several things. One of them, uh, Israel's army is a, is a civilian army, call up of reserves, obviously taxes uh, the country's economy. That's a critical point of Israeli strength. Uh, divides forces along two fronts in general. Right? If you are just able to devote all of your forces and all of your resources and all of your attention to Gaza, you're able to finish that job much quicker. Right? So, But if you have to divide your forces, you're going to go at a slower pace. You're going to have to keep your attention on the northern border. You're going to have to consider how many resources you can expend in Gaza because the northern border may open up into something bigger. It basically divides a country with finite resources along two, two fronts. This slowing process of the march in Gaza allows room for, again, as we're already seeing, uh, international goodwill for the Israeli uh, war in Gaza to shrink. So a premature ceasefire could be implemented. I think that's the goal that Hezbollah is aiming for, right? Basically, buy as much time by slowing the Israelis as much as possible in Gaza so a premature ceasefire can be imposed. Hamas survives, rebuild, you know, rearm, repeat in the future as they've promised. Yeah, and if Hezbollah can come out of this, if that goal can be achieved and Hezbollah could come out of this with its forces intact, with its rocket and missile forces and taking minimal. Joe, back me up. How many Hezbollah fighters have been killed so far that you've tracked? There's, I think it's over 70. I know one. They claimed 70. 70. Okay. Well, it's 71 now. So uh, <laughs> 71 because uh, I'm looking at uh, one that they claimed uh, just a little while ago, maybe 30 minutes ago, uh, they published. So, so we're in the 70. You know, we're in a low. Yeah, we a haven't even broke 100. Hezbollah is estimated to have what? 50,000, 100,000 fighters, 40,000. 40, uh, yeah. And that's just, you know, that's not counting, you know, other, uh, other forces they can call up. That's not counting right. Lebanese resistance brigades. Right. So they have more, more that they can call up. Yeah. If they can walk out of this with a couple of hundred casualties, it's forces intact and Israel forced into a ceasefire. That's, that's a major victory for Hezbollah in, in my opinion. Would you agree, David? It's having your, it's having your cake and eating it too. And this is kind of the approach. How much, how much can you do while incurring minimal loss? And that is, that is part of the resistance axis strategy. Do as much as possible, walk right up to the line and incur as, 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 as little loss as possible. Yeah. I mean, Hezbollah lets Hamas cross that line big time. Mm-hmm. They're going to take mm-hmm. the brunt for it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's, I think it's, it's, um, you know, look, the international, we're starting to see the Biden administration looks like they're beginning to crack over this. We're starting, we're seeing the reporting of that. This is something, Joe, what did we say at the beginning of this, right? The the clock starts ticking and what's the time? What is it, 30 to 60 days? <laughs> yeah. And the cracks it, start appearing. <laughs> it's, yeah, that's what I said. It's um not uh, what the biggest worry for Israel is not necessarily Hamas or, or other fronts, but it's time if they want to achieve their goal of eradicating Hamas, destroying Hamas in Gaza. So, uh, yeah. So, and we're already seeing that, right? Um, yep. and, and just 
just to get back to David's point real quick, um, you know, about Hezbollah and, you know, I guess uh, you could say like pressuring Israel and, um, and, and contributing to, uh, let's say, an early ceasefire. Uh, but you can you can make the same argument for the Houthis. You can make the same argument for the groups in Iraq um, that are uh, attacking American positions, right? Because what's happening here is a pressure campaign, right? Because if you pressure uh, Israel's major ally, the United States, you pressure the uh, countries uh, using the shipping lanes, right, in the Red Sea, um, it, the pressure falls back on Israel. So, and then you can get possibly a premature ceasefire. Then Hamas remains intact, right? So it goes back to what, again, what we're saying at the beginning of when, uh, right after this uh, war started, time is not on Israel's side. And we're seeing that. Yeah. Yeah. The administration's comments about restricting aid, conditioning aid, potentially we're starting to see reports of Biden's frustration with the Israeli leadership. This is this is something that's very concerning. If I was an Israeli, this is the one to watch. Watching U.S. support, I'm looking at the polling coming out. Over a little over 50 percent support for Israel. These are things that you know. I think as time goes on, we're we're going to see support for Israel erode, and maybe not in this conflict, but the next one. You know, that's also something to be considered. But David, thinking about Iran's influence over Hezbollah. If Supreme Leader Khamenei, if he ordered Hassan Nasrallah, obviously the Secretary General of Hezbollah, if he ordered him to significantly escalate attacks against Israel, do you think Nasrallah has the autonomy? Does he have the ability to to disagree with that, or would he be forced to do Iran's bidding? So, look, I mean, the way the the Iranians operate with their proxies, there is a top down hierarchy. It's also not entirely solid in the sense that they're not it's it there is kind of a give and take but the first among equals is iran what we're seeing now the presence of ghani coming in back and forth uh to lebanon uh amir abdullahi and the iranian foreign minister what i think is going on is there's continuous consultations right i think ideally they don't want to lose hezbollah right this is their star proxy this is every every country in the region that iran has entered into hezbollah has been the tip of the spear it is their most ideologically loyal proxy and this is the proxy that it's not even i would call it an extension rather than a proxy and i make this point that it's an extension like my arm is an extension of me this you know if all the the spigots of funding are cut off from iran because of sanctions or whatever hezbollah would remain loyal because of the the ideological link that's not a card that you want to burn very easily so i think what you do is you have consultations with them and you say hey what can you do for me right what can you do for the collective interests of the resistance axis right now we're not going to force you but but and there's a big but here we go back to syria in 2011 i don't think hezbollah wanted to you know go back a little bit even May 2000, right? Hezbollah was the darling of the Arab world. This was this is the resistance movement that had humbled the you know the the undefeatable Zionist army, the first to reclaim Arab land by force and expel the Zionists by force, and so on and so forth. Hezbollah lost all of that capital, all of that image uh, in Syria. I think it would have preferred to avoid that. But as Iranian officials have said repeatedly throughout the conflict in Syria, that Syria was an existential matter for the revolution in Iran. So whether Hezbollah wanted to or not, they did it because, you know, as Nasrallah said or has said repeatedly, uh, wherever we must be, we will be. Right? That's his constant line. Wherever we need to be, we're going to be there. And ultimately, it's duty over, over interest. 
I think if the, and this is the constant calculus that I think Iran is going through, everything we just said about Hezbollah on one side, you have a 20 year, almost 20 year investment in the infrastructure, the terrorist infrastructure of the Gaza Strip. You have years on top of that of investing in Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad's capabilities. You're risking losing that right now as Iran, right? You're risking losing at least your 20-year investment. I mean, Al-Akhbar, after the 2005 disengagement, said that even Ahmad Bouniya went to Gaza to help them build up their tunnel warfare capabilities, rocket warfare capabilities, the funding that has come, the know-how. You're losing a front against Israel. Now, the question is, when you're from you know Khamenei's perspective or from Salami's perspective or whoever's really calling the shots on this, is risking Hezbollah worth saving Gaza? And I think that's going to be a constant calculus. It's not one that I can answer right now, that's, but it, I think it's, it's helpful to keep in mind that calculus that's going on, on in Tehran. If the scales tip in favor of saving Gaza and the investment in Gaza, I think you will see uh, Khamenei or you know, Hussein Salami or Ghani saying, we need you to step in. That's it. Um, and Nasrallah will do it. Now, I think they're going to do it in a more calculated fashion. This kind of goes back to something that we were talking about earlier. Uh, how much, you know, they're, they're monitoring how much the war is taxing the Israeli economy. Again, international support is a big one. Uh, this kind of goes back to their strategy from 1985 to 2000. Um, Hezbollah knows it can't confront the IDF one-on-one. The entire resistance axis knows this. Well, if you can't stop the IDF, why don't you pressure those who control the IDF, Israel's civilian population, because civilian control and a democracy. In this case, if you can't do that, go to those who control Israel, right? which is the international community in the United States. Tailor the images to the American zeitgeist. Tailor the images that are coming out of Gaza to what, you know, and, and the messaging. I mean, I don't think it's it's by, by sheer happenstance that Hamas fighters are now hugging these, these hostages and acting like they were, you know, hanging out in Gaza playing PS5 or something, right? They're giving hand slaps and everything. This is to kind of clean up the image that was damaged um, in uh, on October 7th to give this image the, of, of, of a genuine resistance movement to, again, tailor what Hamas is doing to the American 2023 mindset, especially the 18 to 24 uh, age group. And I think as as you see uh, those numbers start to tip, now it's 50-50, you're saying support for Israel. What about when it goes to 49-50, right? 48-52 and so on. I think then you might see more leeway for, for Iran to tell Hezbollah, we need you to act now. David, I'm going to disagree with you and i think you're going to wind up agreeing mm. with you i don't think it's tailored okay. to the 18 to 24 age group mm. i think it's tailored to the 12 to 24 age group i'm seeing images sure. and videos of young sure. children you know with pro hamas statements and things like that and i think they're forward thinking on this but um anyway neither here nor there yeah agreed agreed uh <laughs> it, it, it's that's what you know that's what's really disturbing me in all of this is watching how our youth are being sold a very bad bill of goods on what this terrorist organization is, what these terrorist organizations are. I actually agree with you 100%. I think we talked about this with uh, our colleague Benham in a previous podcast. On my experiences, these groups, they operate, it's not top down. We order you to do so. They do things on consensus and they try to achieve that consensus and get it back. You know, like you said, what can you do for us? You know, what's the most you can do? I think they work along those lines. You described it perfectly in order to achieve the overarching goals. And what's the current mood 
about Hezbollah in, if you can even determine this, about Hezbollah inside of Lebanon, outside of its its rabid core supporters. What do you think the average uh, Lebanese citizen thinks of Hezbollah with the deterioration of their economy and now with this fight against Israel, which they don't need? Look, I think it's a complicated question, but let's start with with Hezbollah's kind of circles of support. Yeah, you have kind of a, and I think the way to look at Hezbollah supporters is kind of like concentric circles. Um, the hardcore, right? These are these are the people who are ideologically and religiously committed. You could Hezbollah could burn the world around them, and they would not budge. Right? They are just that committed. As you go out, you have people even among kind of Hezbollah's support base. And this is the kind of the the genius, if you will, of Hezbollah's support base. It's very flexible what it is to constitute a Hezbollah supporter. You don't have to necessarily be ideologically rigid, a religious person. I mean, I'll tell you one thing that I saw at a, during a visit to South Lebanon, a Hezbollah bikini. And I'll leave you to imagine where the, the, the signs of Hezbollah are strategically placed. But you would not see that, say, in Iran or with ISIS. Like they're, They know how to keep their, their circle of support flexible enough. And as you go out, people are supporting Hezbollah uh, for different reasons. Right. There are some who will support Hezbollah because it gives them um, the ability to go toe to toe with the traditional, you know, uh, Sunni and Maronite leadership class of Lebanon, where the Shia were kind of the the, the bottom um, gives them that kind of that Shia pride when you're when you're talking about a sectarian feudalist country like Lebanon. Um, there are some who support them because of the vast social services they provide that otherwise would not be provided. And that's everything from orphanages. Uh, to old folks' homes, to you know, to providing jobs, uh, to schooling, and they they have excellent schools that rival some of the most prestigious schools in Lebanon. Uh, and then you have people who are supporting them. You know, we might sit with these types; they might have a beer with us. You would not be able to tell the difference in terms of their lifestyle between us and them, but they still support Hezbollah for something that's a, a tangible return. In some cases, it's resistance, right? The idea that they've been sold on that Israel is this murderous, rapacious entity whose raison d'etre, it's vocation. The Israelis wake up every morning and say, we want to kill Arabs and steal their land, right? And the only thing deterring them is Hezbollah's strength. So you need Hezbollah to be strong. Um, now, how much each one constitute or each group constitutes of Hezbollah supporters? I would say the, the, the majority are kind of in that outer area that are supporting it for for these utilitarian uh, reasons, that puts Hezbollah in sort of a bind. It can't act irresponsibly, right? meaning they might support Hezbollah uh, attacking Israel in a case where Israel seemed to launch uh, the first the first strike, right? And this isn't, by the way, isn't limited to to the Shia community. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk of like the Shia opposition and all that. I think that's Unless they can muster critical mass and organization, they're irrelevant. But let's talk about outside of the Shia. Even during the height of the Lebanon protests, I remember uh, a Lebanese woman who had a cross about this big around her neck, uh, criticizing Hezbollah's political participation, but saying she supports Hezbollah if they, and I quote, shed the blood of a Zionist, right? So outside of that, right, even in Junye, which is a heavily Christian area, you had another woman coming out and saying, Nasrallah, bring your forces down to help us, right? So so where, like, where are you... you know, now, would that woman, that same woman who thinks Nasrallah would have been a savior in that moment during the, the Lebanon protests and kind of these thugs coming out and beating up people um, or against the corrupt political class, would she support Hezbollah opening up a war against Israel? Probably not. She wants Hezbollah to protect her. So Hezbollah has to maintain that image in order to maintain that support. That complicates it, but look, they've, they've done this before. And it also kind of, from the Lebanese side, um, 
let's say Hezbollah does throw the first punch like they did in July 2006. Uh, and I've talked to many Lebanese. Look, I fought in that war on the Israeli side and I've talked to Lebanese on the other side. And what the Lebanese remember, I know what I remember. I remember the attacks and the rockets that came before and the kidnapping. Lebanese don't, the average Lebanese doesn't even remember that. Uh, the intensity of the Israeli campaign could make somewhat, could make the average Lebanese forget the original Hezbollah provocation um, and end up lining up behind Hezbollah. Now, again, it depends. It really depends. David, if I may interject, that's that's almost what we're witnessing right now, right? The Hamas launched its brutal attack. Yeah. Israel responds and 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 what most people or you know, those who are coming out basically in support of Hamas, they're only focused on the one thing. And then they're actually lying about, you know, they're coming I've seen people make statements like that was a black flag operation or they didn't really. So that's a That's a very interesting point that you make there. That's something that I've observed, especially in the beginning, you know, Israel had a lot of sympathy on its side, but maybe a week after it was, especially once Israel started its attacks against Hamas. Right. So, and yeah, just like you were saying, Bill, I mean, some people are even denying it. The attack happened. And, and then on top of that, you see the videos that Hamas publishes about these hostages being released and they're all, you know, here's some water, you know, a nice pat on the back. And it's just crazy, right? But for people that understand this, like us, we, we, we see through the propaganda, right? We understand, but a lot of people don't. And that's, that's, that's become an issue here. And now, yeah, it's uh, this public opinion. It's um, it re- Hamas is really playing on that. It's uh, it understands and, and Hezbollah and everybody else. Right. So uh, I think that's uh, an important point to make here. Well, also vis-a-vis the Lebanese, right? Look, any, any Israeli campaign in Lebanon is going to be inevitably brutal and it's going to inevitably be, fall on the Lebanese population, Lebanese civilian population. And Look, we can sit here calmly in Washington, D.C. or, you know, dis- discussing this. But if you're someone who has bombs falling on you, it's your instinctive reaction to hate the person dropping the bombs, irrespective of whether they're justified. You're not going to sit there and make that calculus, right? It's just it's a visceral reaction. You killed my cousin. You destroyed my house, whatever it is. Um, and it's it's equally instinctive for you to say, oh, whoever's going to give that guy a bloody nose, good for them, Right. Now, that doesn't mean that the day after the war, there might not be some kind of reckoning. Again, it's hard to gauge um, how how this would shake out. I think Hezbollah is taking into account the idea that if it appears to have irresponsibly goaded Israel into war, it will lose that support. But if it plays its cards right uh, and, it, and Israel looks or does actually throw the first punch, um, and Israel may have to throw the first punch, right? This is a, this is a growing threat on its northern border. I, I mean, this is kind of the the damned if you do, damned if you don't nature of this conflict. Uh, that may end up redounding to Hezbollah's benefit in terms of its public support. That is, if Hezbollah survives the day after the war. But those are just things to consider. Yeah, and Hezbollah technically did throw the first punch. They were the first yeah. ones. Yeah, the Israelis did not launch attacks into sure. Lebanon until you know all their attacks have been responsive. But that's not how it's going to be. That's not how it's going to play in the propaganda. You know, we see it, but they don't. Perception matters more than facts in this war. It is something that Hezbollah perfected between 1985 to 2000. I think that was the laboratory of, of their use of propaganda, information, and narrative and warfare to bridge the conventional gap they have with the IDF. And they've only, you know, they've imparted that knowledge to their partners, clearly, and they've only improved since then. And they realize that, again, perception matters more than facts. Kind of as, as a Churchill who said, you know, the, a lie can get halfway around the world before the truth can even get its pants on. And we're seeing this. 
Uh, it's also much Every more day. difficult to make a factual argument. Yeah. Like, look, look how much time we've, we've had to spend to discuss like theoretically simple things. Think about how simple it would be to just put out a lie and let it, and especially when you don't have counter arguments, right? You're not dealing with a, with an open information uh, ecosystem, right? They, they could, Hezbollah has TV, they have uh, newspapers, right? They have an ability to kind of surround you with information. And it's not like the rest of Lebanon's media outlets are necessarily going to contradict that uh, that narrative. That'd be suicide. Absolutely. Yeah. And what's disturbing, you know, it, it, and they have two audiences, right? They have their audience in Lebanon and in the wider Arab world. But then that message is bled over here into the United States to a point where you have, you know, and I think that's the real. You know they rec- they're they're smart. They recognize they need the local support, but they also need to support here in the U.S. or in Europe in order to weaken uh, the the um, support for Israel. But David, I'm going to ask one final question. Um, the U.S. has provided billions of dollars to prop up the Lebanese army, and the, I, at the outset of this conflict, I believe the the Lebanese military came out and said, "Well, look, if Hezbollah wants to, I think I think it was, it was it might have been the defense minister in Lebanon. I can't recall. It was about a month or two ago, and basically came out and said, "Well, if Hezbollah does start a war with Israel, there's nothing we can or will do to stop it." Is that a good investment by the U.S.? Look, I think it depends on what we consider the American interest in Lebanon. Uh, from my perspective. Uh, you know, look, if the U.S. assesses that it is in its interests that Lebanon, I don't know, prosper and live and just be stable, that's one thing. But we've assessed that our interest in Lebanon, this is per the State Department, uh, is primarily to degrade and destroy ultimately, ultimately destroy Hezbollah. Um, now, we've been cooperating with the LAF since 2005, since the withdrawal of the Syrian army. We've been providing them weapons and training and so on and so forth towards the ultimate accomplishment of that goal, right? Towards the ultimate accomplishment of propping up official Lebanon and all of its institutions, including the LAF, um, as not just a substitute to Hezbollah, but as, you know, the, the only actor in, uh, you know, uh, or the only player uh, in the room, um, that hasn't that hasn't worked, um, and and it's not just that it hasn't worked; it can't work. Lebanon is not. Well, let's take a step back. Hezbollah is a legitimate part of the Lebanese political and social fabric. They say this; everyone else says this, right? Lebanon is a, is a, it's a it's a it's a phenomenal democracy, right? You do have votes, you do have elections. Uh, you had a parliamentary election, and the last parliamentary election, Hezbollah garnered three hundred and fifty thousand give or take votes. In terms of absolute votes, that's the that was the biggest party in parliament. Uh, Lebanese forces, which garnered more seats because of the way the seats are divided, but fewer votes, garnered 150,000 votes less than Hezbollah. That's the second largest party. So that just kind of gives you an idea of, Le- of Hezbollah's political power. Now, if you are a procedural democracy, if you're a nominal democracy, right, you have to allocate power based on based on votes obtained. If you're a country that operates like Lebanon, which is not even sectarian, but even feudalistic, it's subsectarian feudalistic, right? Uh, but you, uh, you know, each feudal lord kind of operates in the name of his sect. Uh, whatever political power, you know, whatever votes you garner has to translate into governmental power. That includes influence in governmental decisions, you know, all the way from energy policy to defense policy. So Hezbollah is a voice in the room. I don't know how anyone expects Hezbollah to vote and and 
because of Lebanon's sectarian makeup, everything is done by consensus. As we see, they can't even elect a president unless everyone agrees to everything, right? So kind of taking that in mind, um, if we want to disarm Hezbollah, everyone in the room has to agree, including Hezbollah, which groups tend to not shoot themselves in the foot. So I, I think like just understanding how Lebanon uh, operates, its makeup, how decision-making is made in Lebanon. We need to, we don't need to go to these extremes of, you know, Lebanon equals Hezbollah equals Lebanon or Hezbollah controls the, uh, the, the LAF. Those aren't necessarily factually accurate, but even looking at Lebanon, uh, kind of its Byzantine politics as they are, there is no room for Lebanon to be able to disarm Hezbollah. Um, and that's something we need to accept. Now, what we do with that, that's, that's for someone above my pay grade, but at least acknowledge that if your goal is to empower official Lebanon, including the LAF, to get rid of Hezbollah, to slowly reduce, remove the, the, the need for Hezbollah, that's never going to happen. Yeah. And, you know, look, I would even settle for constrained Hezbollah, right? Just mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. stop. We can't them. do that either. We can't do we that can't, either. They, yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Because you have so, because you have to get Hezbollah's permission to constrain them. So it's not it's <laughs> you, well, you laid that out perfectly, David. I really appreciate that's a that's the explanation that only someone like you really understand the intricacies of Lebanon can can put out there. Because I don't think most people understand understand this that that is the reason. And yet, the U.S. will continue to provide U.S. taxpayer dollars to prop up a Lebanese military that couldn't in our wildest dreams give the results, the minimal results that we would hope it it's could deliver. Eight, it's, it's been 18 years that we've been at this policy, right? It's not like we've tried this for five years. Let's give it another five to see. It's almost two decades, right? I, I and, was still, I was still, I was still a kid when this, when this, <laughs> when this went into effect, right? And we're worse off today than we were back then. I mean, Hezbollah was more constrained under when Lebanon was under Syrian domination than than it is today under Lebanese ostensible sovereignty. So if something, if you tried something for 18 years and you've produced not just no results, but negative, net negative results, it's it's at least time to reassess the efficacy of the policy or the policy entirely. Yeah, and I'll give uh, the listeners a, an example of this that everyone will get. Pakistan, we've propped up, you know, we, after 9-11, we gave Pakistan probably one to $2 billion a year um, in order to get, you know, rid of terrorist groups as well as constrain uh, the Taliban. And the Taliban killed American troops every year and the U.S. would go back and um, give them more and we would ask them and they they just felt that, I don't want to get into a long story about this, but this is when I learned that there was no daylight between the Republican and Democrat Party when, Democratic Party when it came to um, U.S. policy on Pakistan. All they believed was that throwing money at the Pakistani government and the Pakistani military would grant us a solution. And what the Pakistanis did was just take our money, laugh at us, and continue to do it at once. And, you know, this is how bad policy gets made and how our taxpayer dollars get wasted. Not only bad policy, but like in the case of Pakistan, it fueled the insurgency in Afghanistan and led to our defeat. And um, you know, look, the the reality is is that one day Hezbollah could have access to that mil to the military supplies to to vehicles and things of that nature. Um, I just think that's a that's a recipe for disaster and um one I would hope that a sane government would uh stop immediately after witnessing all of this. But as you I mean, 
you know, same thing we see with Lebanon, both Republican and Democratic uh, administrations. I mean, the Trump administration, with for all of its maximum pressure on Iran, uh, was was the administration that started the negotiations for the maritime border deal, right? Which also kind of you know it, it fuses money into Lebanon uh, when Lebanon hasn't reformed, right? And what that does is it kind of stabilizes the roof above Hezbollah's head because. Lebanon's makeup, like Hezbollah is a symptom of Lebanon's problems, not the cause of them. So if you give money to an unreformed Lebanon, all you're doing is providing stability for all of the bad actors in Lebanon, including Hezbollah, to just, you know, sit back and relax and have money come in. Um, There was no uh, increased pressure on the LAF. There was no talk of defunding the LAF or even reconsidering our policy. It was the same thing. This, this, This notion that the United States must save Lebanon. Again, the question is why? Uh, and what what that serves the how that serves the U.S. interest that remains unanswered because we start to answer that question. Um, but yeah, it's the, it seems to be the same thing that we have these kind of these sacrosanct ideas that we refuse to refuse to mess with. Yeah, I just you know our policy is give crack to a crack addict and hope they quit, <laughs> and um, <laughs> it's just not how the world works. So, David, um, any parting thoughts before we uh, before we finish today? No, that's uh, that's all. I mean, I think we covered everything. Uh, we'll keep monitoring this, and uh, glad to glad we've been on. And Joe, do you have any any parting thoughts before we wrap it up? Right. Just going back to David mentioned earlier, if Hamas finds itself in deep trouble, we'll start calling for help. And will Hezbollah? You know, will they come and essentially save Hamas? Something we we've been talking about, Bill, from the beginning. Actually, if it will, how how far is Iran and Hezbollah gonna go uh, as far as saving one of those? Guess you call it uh, chess pieces, right? Of the axis of resistance. I still don't have an answer for that, right? But I think, um, and we're seeing it today. The Israelis are moving. Uh, they're in their next phase of, of of conflict. They're moving south. Are they going to be able to destroy Hamas? I don't know. If Hamas needs the help, will will Hezbollah come come answer? I I, I don't know yet, but uh, I could see it happening, but. You know, I think that's the real gamble that Iran took with with this, right? Like, you know, if if they can force the ceasefire, if they could force and and Hamas survives this, that's a definite win for everyone. But if it's perceived amongst the axis of resistance that Iran sacrificed Hamas, um, you know, how does that impact? All of these other groups, do they feel that they're the next pawn on the table to be sacrificed? Now, I would argue the Iraqi and Syrian groups and, and very likely the Houthis probably go, oh, well, look, that's there were too far of a reach for Israel to destroy us. But Hezbollah may be looking at this a little differently. And now, David, I agree with you. They they are, as you said, an arm of the Iranian beast. I, I definitely agree with that. But they're certainly within the rank and file within individuals have to start asking questions if the, it's perceived as Hamas being sacrificed on um uh, carelessly now i will i will also say this given the sophisticated propaganda arms of the iranians and hezbollah that i i would guess a lot of that could be overcome or be mitigated well, they're already moving on it. I mean, to that point, Nasrallah in his November 3rd speech, and I think the subsequent speech also kept emphasizing how this was not necessarily a rogue action, but an independent action by Hamas, right? This was, we learned about this on Saturday, just like everyone else was his exact. And I think that's, again, to create that distance between resistance as a principle 
and any potential destruction of Hamas that may occur, or defeat of Hamas that may occur. And I think there's multiple levels that operate here, right? That resistance as a, as a concept can never be defeated. Otherwise, what's its utility? And again, if one ends up being destroyed to everything you're saying, well, no, Iran didn't sacrifice them. These guys decided to go out on a limb on their own. What can we do? It's tragic, but we we learned about it on Saturday like everyone else, guys. Yeah, it's, it's clever. It's definitely clever. It gives them a lot of leeway. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure having you on Generation Jihad. Got to get you back on real soon. Look, this is going to be a long war. None of us can predict what's going to happen next, but we are watching that Northern Front very carefully. Yeah, join us again. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Generation Jihad. Just a reminder, you could find us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review, preferably a positive one. Thanks again, everyone, and we'll see you all again soon.